In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the show Faith and Freedom on Voice of Islam Radio. You are listening to Azhar Chaudhary and I'm joined by my co-host Khalid Hayat. Khalid, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam Azhar. In today's episode, we'll focus on the economics of freedom of religion or belief. Before we dive into today's topic, let me remind listeners of the importance of freedom of religion or belief within Islam. Within Islam, the bedrock of peace and societal advancement lies in the profound principle of freedom of religion or belief. Let there be no compulsion in religion. Chapter 2, verse 257 of the Holy Quran. This verse encapsulates Islam's commitment to fostering a society where individuals are free to choose their faith, promoting harmony and contributing to the collective progress of communities, be that economically, societally. Today's topic, as I said, will focus on the economics of freedom of religion and a quote that we found that encapsulates this topic on a strategic level states that economies of populous countries where religious restrictions and hostilities decreased grew at double the rate as economies where religious restrictions and hostilities substantially increased. So we will see in today's episode a theme developing here, that where you have got no restrictions of freedom of religion or belief, by and large, you see economic growth. And where this is the opposite case, we see a digression from economic growth. And listeners will be fascinated to know that this relationship between economic growth and freedom of religion or belief goes as far back as the 17th century to the French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire, who noted in his book on English society, Letter on the English, freedom of religion in a diverse society was deeply important to maintaining peace in that country. That it was also important in understanding why England at that time was more prosperous in comparison to the countries less religiously tolerant than its European neighbours. And he states that if one religion only were allowed in England, the government would very possibly become arbitrary. If there were but two, the people would cut one another's throats, but as there are such multitudes they all live happy and in peace. So quite, again, interesting to see this take that you can't have one religion dominating, you can't have two religions dominating, you need to have freedom of choice, you need to have various choices within the market for a consumer to choose from, if we speak in economic terms. And Adam Smith, the modern founder of economics, in his book Wealth of Nations, which predominantly discusses and uncovers the economic concepts of demand and supply. He used an argument even to put forward that stated that in the long run, it is in the best interest of society as a whole and the civil magistrates, in this case the government in particular, to allow people to freely choose their own religion as it helps prevent civil unrest and reduces intolerance. So long as there are enough religions or religious sects operating freely in a society, then they are compelled to moderate their more controversial and violent teachings, so to be more appealing to more people and to have an easier time attracting new converts. So it's this concept of free competition amongst religions for converts to choose from that not only give choice to the consumer, speaking in economic terms, who's a essentially the person in that society, but also moderate some of the more violent teachings that may be out there. So it's quite an interesting point there. And Smith also finally points that laws that prevent religious freedom and seek to preserve the power and belief in a particular religion will in the long run only serve to weaken and corrupt that religion as its leaders and preachers become complacent, disconnected and unpracticed in their ability to seek and win over new converts. Very poignant words there. And so now that we've discussed the history of the economic benefits of freedom of religion and belief, we, we want to move towards 
uh, a more recent case study. And, and this is kind of where our research has been focused around. There was a report produced by the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation, which uh, looked at an analysis of how freedom of religion of belief has both positively and negatively, well, I say positively impacted economies. The the research study looked at the GDP growth of 173 countries in 2011 and controlled for two dozen different financial, social and regulatory inferences. And the quote at the top of the show that was given by Uzzur was actually taken from this report. And you can see that there's been a global increase in restrictions on freedom of religion and belief between 2007 and 2017. As part of the analysis completed by the report, they found that GDP growth rates in populous countries where religious restrictions and hostilities decreased grew at the double the rate as in countries where religious restrictions and hostilities substantially increased. But but sort of trying to, to summarise the, the key parts of the report um, and looking at what are the important factors related to the economic benefits of freedom of religion or belief, it's, it's broken down into sort of four main areas. So the first main area is, is the reduction of corruption. And the, the report relates um, a simple comparison between the Pew Research Center's 2012 Government Restrictions on Religion of Belief Index and the 2014 Corruption Perceptions Index. And it showed that nine of the 10 most corrupt countries have very high or very high governmental restrictions on religious liberty. And this includes North Korea. And this leads back to the point by Adam Smith that if you've got one religion dominating then that leads to corruption. Exactly, exactly. And and you're seeing that religious freedom allows um, business people to draw on spiritual values and moral teachings, which goes about their works and, and actually helps inform business ethics, CSR policies, things that a lot of modern economies today value highly. And, and it obviously impacts the performance of these local businesses. The, the second piece was on more peace. And that's when religious freedoms are not respected, it can result in violence and conflict. Naturally, this violence and conflict impacts the economies in these regions. And so the example that was given in the report was related to Egypt and how religious regulations and hostilities were adversely affected and the tourism industry was was impacted quite negatively. The, the next piece is, is related to less harmful regulation. And this is associated around you know, legal barriers for religious freedoms to exist. And we're seeing you know, in the import export industry, halal food markets, um, you know, countries that don't allow for religious freedom has restrictions on these types of things. That sort of, I think, just the point on that is if you don't allow halal food, there is this concept of the Muslim pound, which is gaining more and more credence in social, the West. And if you ban that, then you're losing a lot of income there. Exactly. And and you're seeing a disruption of specific markets. Um, you're seeing discrimination of women in the workplace, uh, particularly in nations like France, where Islamic uh, restrictions related to the headscarf and, and Muslim garb has caused issues with populating certain parts of the economy in France. And then finally, one of the major pieces and sort of the, the speaking point of the report is related to more diversity and growth. And this obviously speaks to the point that Voltaire made and also Adam Smith made, which is that there needs to be religious diversity within an economy to allow for economic growth. Um, And the example given in the report was related to China, which said that during the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s, religion was outlawed. And you saw a relative slow in in the economic growth of um, the Chinese nation during that period. And As time has grown, of course, there are still plenty of restrictions that exist in China. But a new study 
by the China Economic Review actually found links between Christianity, which is adhered to by 5% of the Chinese population, and the nation's economic growth. Now, of course, and we will discuss with Dr. Brian during our interview, that China still represents a large nation that inhibits you know, religious freedoms. Yeah. But you can clear, clearly see that where there are opportunities to allow religious diversity, there are on the face economic benefits to um, global economies. Absolutely. And j just for the uh, sake of balance as well during this uh, episode, it's always also worth presenting the other side of the argument, albeit it's, it is in a very small minority. The overwhelming evidence is of there being a positive correlation between freedom of religion or belief and economic growth. There is studies or a study out there that challenges that notion, in particular by the United States Institute of Peace in 2022, called the Global Trends and Challenges to Protecting and Promoting Freedom of Religion or Belief Report. And in the analysis, it suggests a potential negative association between freedom of religion and country-level economic development. Case studies illustrate how economic factors such as the economic dominance of a certain religious group, job discrimination, and tensions over land rights may impact the freedom of religion or belief, despite those countries being economically very prosperous. And some of the examples that are cited in that report include Sri Lanka, where there was job discrimination immediately after the Easter Sunday attacks um, against Muslims. There is also an example given around South Sudan, where there is positive job discrimination for Muslims in, in respect to others. So there are nuanced opinions also on the matter, but I think by and large what we've seen from the research, it suggests highly that the more diversity you have in your country, religiously, the more growth you will see, despite some of the contrary examples that have been given. So let us get into the interview with Dr. Brian Grimm. We are joined all the way from the United States by Dr. Brian J. Grimm. Uh, he serves as the president of the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation and is the global chairman of Dare to Overcome, a corporate diversity initiative. Brian's expertise lies in international religious demography and the socioeconomic impact of restrictions on religious freedom. He holds a doctorate in quantitative sociology from Penn State and has authored several influential books, including The Price of Freedom Denied and The World Religion Database. Most notably, in a study led by Brian in 2016, he stated that religion annually contributes nearly $1.2 trillion of socioeconomic value to the US economy. In addition to his leadership roles, Brian is actively involved in academic and advisory positions. He's on the advisory board of Notre Dame University Law School's Religious Liberty Initiative and the advisory board for Brandeis University Chaplaincy Innovation Lab. Dr. Brian Grimm, welcome to the Voice of Islam radio show. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let us dive into the first question. So we, in an earlier part of the show, discussed the correlation between freedom of religion and economic growth. And there seems to be a lot of support out there in academic research journals to suggest that there is such a thing as a positive correlation between freedom of religion and economic growth. However, it'll be worth understanding firstly, how does a lack of religious freedom of belief restrictions affect economic stability and what are the potential consequences for a nation's long-term economic outlook? Yeah, great. I, th I thought I'd give an example that may seem counterintuitive at first, uh, but yeah. I'll sort of unpack it a bit. Is China, the People's Republic of China, a country where I worked for many years and worked in uh, Western China, Xinjiang, where uh, the Uyghur population who has been um, you know, largely restricted in their practice, mostly of Islam, by the Chinese government in recent years. So uh, China in 19, uh, late 1970s uh, moved away from harsh restrictions, draconian restrictions on religion of all, of all faiths, beliefs, 
um, and then let sort of churches, mosques, uh, temples reopen. And that coincided with uh, China's uh, rapid, uh, well, fairly rapid, uh, in, uh, over the, in, relatively speaking, economic rise to the point that he has now the second largest economy and has moved um, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. But the Chinese economy has, in just recent years, um, started to slow. Some of it was related to the pandemic, but it's related to the Chinese policies that also relate to religion. So uh, with, the, with Xi Jinping's policies of trying to sinicize or make uh, all religions in China uh, Chinese in their characteristics or even uh, have fealty to the Communist Party, uh, those restrictions have been coming uh, back in, and uh, that has been coinciding with uh, a, a downfall in the economy. Right. So as China restricts the economy, restricts religion, all that's a bundled, uh, you know, becomes a bundled good of restrictions. And, and that's really where you see the weight come in. And then, uh, you know, we have sanctions being put on China because of their treatment of the, the Uyghur people. Uh, and, but also just China's clamping down on Internet freedom and other things. It starts to uh, make the economy a big drag on the economy. So you, where you saw religion sort of um, set free after the Cultural Revolution, and that coincided with economic rise, uh, the uh, more uh, restrictive policies, both on religion and the economy, coincide with one another. And then you can see on a massive scale how some of these dynamics work. And um, just on a faith perspective, you know, the Muslim population of China is the 17th largest in the world. So that's a, uh, had a, roughly the same size, number of Muslims living in China as live in Saudi Arabia. So here you have, uh, that's not an inconsequential market, um, not to, to mention, you know, there are uh, tens of millions, uh, some even estimate, 100 million Christians and uh, 200 million Buddhists. So when you start restricting people's freedom, uh, they're less vested in, uh, you know, trusting of the future of their country. So the, all of this has a drag on an ec economic outcome. That's very interesting. And uh, I guess we, we, we want to focus on both the benefits and obviously pitfalls of the, the economic impact of exercising freedom of religion and belief. And so I'd be interested to understand if you could provide any examples of regions where religious freedom has positively impacted their economic prosperity. So uh, one area I've worked both in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And uh, in Saudi Arabia, religious freedom is, um, it's hard to say there is religious freedom. Um, you know, having a church is illegal, having a synagogue, having anything other than a state-approved uh, brand of Islam is um, uh, is forbidden. And where, whereas on the same plot of sand, you could say, also a Muslim-majority country, UAE, uh, they're very open and they, they allow churches. They've now opened uh, even having... Um, uh, admitting Jews in a relationship with Israel. Um, they have a Sikh temple being built. So here you have a country that has opened itself. And, and so to look at those two economies, both of which really got kickstarted because of oil, uh, one country, the UAE, has diversified, that's attracted talent to 
want to stay there for their careers and have their kids there. Uh, it's created a, a not just a dynamic economy that uh, is now 70% weaned off oil, uh, but it has created an environment where people of all faiths and backgrounds uh, feel welcome and want to contribute to the national project. Uh, conversely, in Saudi Arabia, which is still heavily oil-dependent economy, um, you know, as long as you can keep pumping oil, you have money, but that's not a, you know, they're trying to diversify, but it's much harder for them to diversify because it's such a restrictive environment that, you know, for some people for whom faith matters um, and you're not the, the government's approved version of faith, you don't find it a very welcoming place to work. And so if you can work in UAE or work in Saudi Arabia, where, which would you pick? And so for many people, that, that choice is not very difficult. So both you know, have prosperous economies, but one has a, an economic outlook that mirrors its social outlook, which is inclusive, open, um, you know, relatively speaking. I mean, not, not, not nothing just like the UK or US, but it, in, within its neighborhood, it's one of the most open and diverse uh, and, uh, economies, which bodes well for its future. So I think that's where you can see this religious freedom uh, relative to one another. One has more religious freedom, one has really a lack of religious freedom, and uh, that coincides with uh, innovation, people uh, coming to the UAE, and you know it's now a thought leader in, in so many different areas, not just in economics, but certainly in economics and marketing, technology, but also in peace studies and interfaith dialogue on uh, the World Economic Forum, the, you know, the Environment Summit. So, you know, you have a country now that's a recognized leader. So that religious freedom also, you know, builds on itself by making a more open society that people are attracted to and, and, uh, and uh, makes a sort of innovation hub uh, possible. And it's interesting that, that you've made the distinction there between more traditional Islamic republics in comparison to more secular nations. And, and you, you made brief reference there to the United States and the UK. And whilst we were researching this episode, we came across one of your works that stated that religion annually contributes nearly $1.2 trillion of socioeconomic value to the US economy. And, and we we're interested to understand how, how you came to that conclusion based off of your own research. So it's a, it was a question posed. No one had ever uh, done such a study to just see, you know, what's sort of religion worth. And it's a funny question. You say, you know, what's the economic value of religion? It's like trying to measure the economic value of love. But, uh, you know, love has economic consequences. So, you know, like when my daughter got engaged, you know, there was a wedding uh, engagement ring uh, bought and then there's wedding and people coming in hotels being filled up and uh, caterers and florists and uh, and now children and you know so that sort of active love then results in all kinds of economic activity that you can measure so it's hard to measure love but you can measure you know some tangible outcomes so that's what we did with religion is um, not trying to measure you know which religion is better for the economy or but just what do religions do that contribute to the economy and so it's three areas. One is the local congregation. The second are religious institutions above congregational level. And the third are faith-based or faith-inspired business. So at the congregational level, um, you know, congregations, whether it's, you know, wh whatever the religion or denomination, 
they do more than just pray, you know, or have sermons. You know, they're they're places they're of social gathering, social impact. They have lectures. They have, um, uh, you know, we found that more people visit uh, places of worship in the United States to see art and architecture than uh, go to see museums. So you know, people go and uh, they're visiting places of worship not just for uh, prayers on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but for um, cultural enrichment, for pilgrimage, and so all of that's economic activity. Um, but then if you think of what a place of worship does, well, they build buildings, they'll have a building, you have to pay for electricity, you're paying somebody's salary, probably you know, a staff of people in some cases. And then what do they, what do, they do? You know, they're doing more than say, just Sunday school, they're also providing job training. Uh, they're also providing venues for uh, addiction recovery groups. And, you know, all of that is um, uh, services that are provided, like for Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't have to pay uh, churches to meet in their basement. But uh, imagine if they had to build their own places to do that. So then here's economic contribution to uh, social ministry. And then health uh, you know, many, many faith organizations, like during the pandemic, were leading in helping get vaccinations out, helping people with care, helping, you know, it's additional safety net. So all of that, you know, you add that up, and that's a lot of, uh, that comes to about a more than a third of a trillion dollars uh, of just that economic, economic activity. Then faith-based institutions like a university, uh, in the U.S., we have so many faith-based Universities, you know, ranging from uh, now the largest Christian university, I think, in the world is Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, because of its ma massive on-campus and, and virtual uh, campuses. So the largest university in the world, you could say, is also the largest faith-based. It's a faith-based university. Um, so all of that's economic activity, training people for the next generation. There's faith-based hospitals, charities, and then business itself. So, you know, some people might not uh, be familiar with the religious roots of companies like Walmart, where uh, it was started in a very backward um, economic depressed region of the U.S. in Arkansas. Uh, and they just wanted to come up with a store that fit sort of the evangelical culture where the men had to work on the farms and women were trying to take care of their families so that they gave part-time work for the women um, to work in the store to provide goods at an affordable price that would support that sort of ideal family structure. You know, at least that's what their beginnings were very much, you know, sort of a, even when they started spreading stores across the country, they went out sort of like missionaries to, to start and getting churches to sign up to be members of Sam's Club, their sort of bulk store. Yeah. So, you know, all of that adds up to a lot of economic activity, uh, which we estimate $1.2 trillion, making it, I think, the 15th largest. If that were a country, that'd be the 15th largest economy in the world. Yeah. Like you say, these things may not have immediate intrinsic economic value to them, but actually if you dive deep into them, there is a whole economy and then there is a sort of whole contributions that they make towards economic growth. And it's it's an interesting angle to look at. And we obviously as a show wanted to explore this as well, because in orthodox terms, you'll just focus on faith and freedom as a concept, but you will not try to actually look at all these other aspects that also encompass faith and freedom. What policies or practices can governments and businesses adopt to 
promote and leverage the economic benefits of freedom of religion or belief. We, I read your report that you recently did with the APPG for freedom of religion, I think this year. And in there, you had some interesting recommendations and call to actions. So keen to cover that as well. Yeah, so these principles work both at the macro level and micro level. So within a business, when you are add religion as part of diversity, so it's not just gender or LGBT or race, but recognizing faith's an important identifier for many people, not everyone, but even atheists, you know, that's an important identity for them. You know, count that as a belief part of freedom of religion or belief. So if people feel like they can bring their whole soul to work, not just their whole self to work, uh, you know, because for people of faith, they don't view a job as merely a way to make money. They often think, oh, this is part of what God's plan is for me, a calling or I'm Catholic and a Catholic a vocation. You know, yeah. you know, there's a Vatican document called the vocation of business leaders. So that's one thing governments can encourage businesses to start benchmarking. We have an index called the Ready Index, Religious Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Index, getting companies to adopt faith-based policies, faith-friendly policies, uh, religiously inclusive policies, including people uh, that have beliefs that are non-theistic, but uh, equally uh, strongly held. And that that is, again, very fascinating. And we've come to the end of our interview. And Dr. Brian, can I thank you very much for your contribution today? We look forward in the future to maybe hosting you again on our show on a similar topic to cover this more at length. Yeah, this was some really fascinating insight. Uh, there are very few people who have probably taken this approach in terms of studying the, the intrinsic economic value of freedom of religion and belief. People look more towards the social and political influences of, of religion, but that there's rarely a focus around the intrinsic economic value and, and both from a negative perspective and a positive perspective. And it's it's interesting to see the contrast that exists there. But I think we can probably conclude that freedom of religion and belief overall has a positive impact on the, the, ec the economies that exist in various different regions of the world, whether it was you know, Saudi Arabia you know, or the US. So we really want to thank you for your time. It was um, very, very interesting. Well, thank you. And thank you for covering this. I think it's a really important information for people to become more familiar with. Before we conclude today's episode, let us also, dear listeners, have the views of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He states in a keynote address at the 14th National Peace Symposium that Islam is that religion which has forever enshrined the universal principles of freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, and freedom of belief. Very poignant words there from His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, on the importance of freedom of religion and belief within Islam. We've come to the end of this week's episode. Please join us again next time for the series finale, where we will discuss freedom of religion or belief in general, trends of freedom of religion or belief today, the challenges in promoting freedom of religion or belief. I'd like to thank my panellist, Dr. Brian Grimm, for joining us all the way from the United States, my co-host Khaled Hayat, team and listeners. I would like to mention that the views and opinions mentioned by the panellist are their views only and do not necessarily represent the views and outlook of the Voice of Islam radio. Feedback and more information or to listen to this episode again, please log on to www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.